This is Horns Up and yes, we took a break last week. Sometimes life just catches up. I'm taking solace in the universal truth laid out by Pentagram. It's okay, it's all good. How have you been, Trend Crusher? Peter? Let's just say that break was like good for me because the amount of stuff that I had packed in my brain, it was just like no chance for heavy metal. <laughs> and as always, glad to have the one and only Ravi Balakrishnan back on Horns Up. How has your life been? Oh, pretty all right. I mean, we're back into a semi-lockdown again. So, you know, there's not very much to do other than sit around and listen to music, which I'm quite happy with. And of course, work. So, yeah. <laughs> Apart from those two things, I really haven't been up to very much. Hmm. You're probably one of the few people who's under lockdown right now who's taking it so easy. So I really like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, I'm lucky enough to be in Singapore and it's... Uh, easy place to be in so yeah well oh that's got very little to do with me and a lot to do with where i am at the moment so yeah Alrighty. so the three of us are here today to ring in the big 3-0 birthday of an album that's well not really celebrated much or talked about at all it's slave to the grind by american heavy metal band skid row the album was released on June 11th, 1991, which means we are about two months late to the 30 uh, happy birthday wala party. But uh, hey, even though we are digital savvy, we are still pre-2000 kids from India. And that means we're used to catching on to American things at least a couple of months later. Anyways, bad excuses and jokes aside, let me begin this uh, chat or celebration with a question. How would you guys categorize Skid Row? Glam, cock rock, stadium rock, hard rock? Heavy metal, arena metal, pop metal, traditional American metal, the drug that fuels the life of Sebastian Bach. So, you know, I mean, Skid Row is basically, I think, not very consciously a shape-shifting beast of a band. Uh, the first album was definitely very much in the commercial hard rock, heavy metal uh, uh, idiom. You know, uh, I know Sebastian Bach hates the words hair metal and I'm mm -hmm. kind of with him on that. It's a very, very dismissive term, but it was definitely a really, really good commercial hard rock album. It was, I think, uh, produced or rather there was some huge degree of involvement by Doc McGee, who was managing Bon Jovi. And, uh, you know, there was definitely uh, extraordinarily commercial bent to it, while at the same time, it had it was a little rougher around the edges than you know something by say trickster or bang tang or any of the other uh, bands that you know are i think quite justifiably forgotten uh, these days uh, the interesting thing was the uh, evolution from i think the self titled debut to slave to the grind was in quantum terms this was definitely not the band that not the second album that you expected from the band that put out the self-titled album. And then Subhuman Race was, I think, even heavier in terms of guitar tones and stuff like that. There was a bit of a palpable Pantera influence there, a lot of, you know, sludgy mid-tempo kind of songs. Yep. And then, of course, there was the long hiatus. And after that, I really don't know. I mean, I frankly haven't been keeping up uh, with Skid Row post Sebastian Bach's departure and what little I've heard convinces me that you know what I'm not missing very much so yeah they keep making noises about oh we're gonna go back to the 
you know, original formula of what made us great with our next album. And they always disappoint. So, you know, I'd rather just hear Sebastian Bach's solo career, which I think has hit more of the beats of what made Skid Row great. What about you, Peter? How would you categorize Skid Row? Confession up front, right? This is the first, yesterday was the first time I heard Slave to the Grind start to finish. I haven't heard the album before that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like for me, Skid Row just kind of was one of those bands that you know the cl- know the hits, right? Like 18 in Life and all of that. So you always know them for that. So like, if you asked me this a couple of days ago, I would say like they're pop metal, right? I mean, this was like clearly like stuff that was written in there, kind of made like more, I would say sugary or easy for people to listen to and all. But then I heard like Slave to the Grind yesterday and uh, I was like, like, wait, is this the same band? Like, what's going on? Like, and I totally see where Ravi's coming from, right? If anyone kind of heard that first album and then heard this, they'd be like, what's up with these guys, right? And then again, this is this is 91, right? If I'm not wrong, this is when like all of this, that sound kind of was getting changed, right? This is, I think what, we're still a couple of years away from Nirvana, like shitting on everyone? No, it, it is the year that Nirvana shattered everyone. Oh, oh, everyone but the but, uh, effects of that shitting were felt only, I think, in 92 or thereabouts, once the videos started, you know, getting uh, a yeah. lot of uh, rotation on MTV and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what you think, Arnish. Skid Row, like pure heavy metal, arena metal, stadium rock, uh, not glam, definitely not, uh, not cock rock of that sound they very categorically moved away from that sound they knew that this wasn't the identity that they wanted right from the very get-go and i'm guessing that has to do with the fact that they were new jersey kids and not la kids right so maybe maybe it stems from that ravi what's your uh, relationship as such with this kind of a sound the entire hard rock glam arena metal whatever you want to call it yeah well, since uh, around 15 uh, at the, you know, absolute peak of all of this, uh, I was hugely excited by it. And, you know, I mean, uh, uh, 18 and Life, I got on, I first heard on a compilation that Warner had put out called the Metal Bible. What a badass Ooh. name for a compilation, right? Yeah. And it had a whole bunch of acts whose only common factor was the fact that they were on Warner or Atlantic. So you had... Uh, uh, Winger, you had Skid Row, you had Mr. Big, and the album rounded out with Practice What You Preach by Testament. Wow. And uh, Rothschild America were again one of these proto thrash kind of bands. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I think Alien and Life was the first song I heard by them, and I was just completely blown away by the singing on that. Same here, man. You know, what a fucking excellent song. Yeah, and yeah. the singing was just so freaking goosebump inducing. And it made your throat hurt sympathetically if you uh, fancied yourself to be a singer, which, of course, I did back then. And you were like, I can't believe this guy is doing this. And what's uh, really funny is I think uh, a few days back, uh, Bach actually shared uh, the original version of 18 and Life with the previous singer. And it sounds nothing like you know, the final recorded output. So Slave to the Grind, I actually remember we got this, we chipped in and got this album as a birthday present for a, a friend of ours. Uh, I think this would have been February 1992. 
And we were just blown away by that album. I mean, we already started getting into the slightly heavier music, like thrash metal, Metallica, Slayer, etc. Uh, and we'd heard a few songs off uh, the debut album, which was a little hard to come by here. Uh, you know, we'd heard You've Gone Wild. We'd heard, I think, Me, uh, and of course, 18 and Live and I Remember You. And, you know, you form a certain impression of a band from that. And I figured that Skid Row were, you know, more or less in the same spaces. Winger, though not as, uh, you know, guitar nerdy as Winger was or... Uh, you know, maybe kind of like Dawkin, but this album was completely groundbreaking. I mean, it was so ferociously heavy. The singing was amazing all through. It was just goosebump inducing. I mean, when uh, we heard Wasted Time by, uh, uh, which I think the last yeah. song, Slave to the Grind, just the singing on that, oh my God, it's phenomenal. Uh, yep. Strangely enough, that song's supposed to have been uh, written, I think, for Stephen Adler, who was in the process of, I think, being booted out of Guns N' Roses around that time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was brilliant. Plus, it had a song called Get the Fuck Out, which scandalized all of us a great deal. Because, you know, <laughs> while we were used to the F-bomb here and the F-bomb there, you know, nobody had actually had the guts to call the song Get the Fuck Out, at least. Uh, yeah, even today on YouTube, you can find it if you type in "get the fuck out." It's it's only listed as "get the f out." Yeah. What? Wow. Okay, so so Ravi's Ravi's story of getting into Skid Row is kind of is kind of mine because um, I was yes introduced to the brand pretty late in life, and it was because of Eighteen and Life, which as we've already nerded out about, it's a fucking fantastic song, but. I didn't actually know anything about Skid Row or uh, didn't have wanted to get an album, but I couldn't really find an album of theirs. Instead, uh, what I found in the garbage bin section was Angel Down, which was Sebastian oh, Bach's wow. first was so amazing studio album. album, which released in 2007. That was phenomenal. I mean, Angel Down till till date is one of the most explosive uh albums that i've ever heard because the moment you play that first song you're like holy shit what who is this guy and immediately it it made me a fan of sebastian bach so after that is when i actually heard skid row which was released in 1989 originally for the first time and i was like fuck this is excellent and honestly it didn't prepare you for slave to the grind and slave to the grind itself is I mean, yeah, that's that that's something that we are going to be talking about even more. And yeah, a uh, subhuman race followed. And then just like Ravi, even I stopped caring about Skid Row because, yeah, there was no longer any Sebastian back to it. Alrighty. So coming back to Slave to the Grind, let me set the stage here a bit with a quick Cliff Notes roundup of the facts as such. It's the band's second album following their superb self-titled debut that was released in 1989. Slave to the Grind was released on 11 June 1991. The album features the original lineup, or the li not the original lineup, the lineup that featured on the debut as well, that has Sebastian back on vocals, Dave Snake Sabo and Scotty Hill on guitars, Rachel Bolden on bass, and Rob Afuso, I think that's how you pronounce it, on drums. Now, there are two versions of this album. There's a clean version and there's a dirty version. Both list uh, 12 songs. The difference is... Song number six, the clean version has Beggar's, Beggar's Day. Day 
exactly. Well, the dirty version replaces it with get the fuck out. Uh, so here's the haunts up cheat. Uh, I honestly recommend getting the Japanese edition of the album that has both the songs and also packs in a Sex Pistols cover too. With that being said, Ravi, uh, this is something that we kind of spoke about, but let's let's like you know dive into it a little bit more. What's the scene like in 1991, both for Skid Row as well as for glam or heavy metal, uh, especially American heavy metal in general? Yeah, see, I think uh, we were at the stage where you know we kind of, uh, of course, uh, the huge disclaimer here being, uh, you know. Uh, I was, of course, in India, and everything that we got came through. You know, a few months late. Cable TV had yet to really sink its roots in, and you know, your best bet was essentially being able to find some heavy metal magazine at you know, a waste paper shop or a ruddy paper shop or something like that. So you know, we kind of got an idea of what was happening in that world in a highly piecemeal and uh, fragmentary fashion. And actually, uh, if I could just circle back to a previous point you made about Guns N' Roses and Skid Row, the reason why, you know, that natural progression didn't happen is because Skid Row got nowhere near as much airtime as Guns N' Roses as did. did. Yep. Uh, you know, the hard the hard edge songs on uh, Skid Row, which they had uh, music videos for, which I think was uh, Monkey Business and the title track were degrees heavier than, you know, uh, what was that song? Uh, you Could Be Mine by Guns N' Roses, which was I think the heaviest song from Illusions that they actually had a, a video for. Uh, Wasted Time was a song which had an almost intimidating vocal outro, uh, not at all as commercial as say a Don't Cry or a November Rain or an Estranged. So, you know, uh, by the time I think Illusions dropped, uh, Slave to the Grind was already being forgotten. It was never much of a priority with MTV Asia or Channel V Asia or whoever was running the show at that time. So, you know, it was it kind of slipped between the cracks. So, yeah, uh, speaking about the uh, milieu at that time, a, a lot of us were just getting into what we considered in the broadest possible term rock. And this could include somebody like, you know, a single songwriter like Bob Dylan on the one hand and Napalm Death on the other. And, you know, for the sake of convenience, if anyone asked you what you listen to, you just said rock. Exactly. You just realized that it was going to be more effort than it was worth explaining all of that. So I was hugely into the entire so-called glam rock scene. I absolutely loved Flesh and Blood by Poison. Uh, uh, Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue. And, you know, when I heard, uh, when we first picked up Slave to the Grind, we were expecting an album that was kind of like on those lines. So the way we shopped for tapes back then is we'd ask the guy at the store to play the first few seconds of the first song, then flip the tape over, hear the last few seconds of the last song. And, you know, uh, I heard uh, uh, Living on a Chain Gang and I was like, holy shit. This is an album that, you know, is absolutely worthy of being bought as a birthday gift for my friend. And so, you know, we just forked out our cash and got that immediately. Uh, so it was fantastic. We absolutely loved Skid Row. But again, they were even then, at least as far as India was concerned, a bit of a cult band because, you know, they, uh, 
the uh, momentum around slave and uh, slave to the grind rose and fell before cable TV really caught on. And by the time cable TV caught on, the only really famous rock music that you could hear on it was the big hits from Illusions and uh, I think Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all of that. So in that sense, it kind of slipped between the cracks. And then, of course, you had uh, a Subhuman Race, which was a much heavier uh, album. And its lead single, I think, Breakdown, was nowhere near as catchy or as immediate as uh, any of the tracks had been on uh, Slave to the Grind. So, yeah. Mm. Oh, I'll admit it. I'm a huge fan of this album. And I chose this album to be celebrated or to be talked about on this episode because I think it's one of the most underappreciated slabs of music ever created because it's got a fabulous collection of songs. Almost all the songs are bangers. It's an... Yeah, it's like an album that plays out like a greatest hits. Exactly, yeah. It's it's also a very easy album to listen to because it's ridiculously well-paced. Um, almost all the songs have really good hooks and it's written with a sense of maturity that takes the animalistic and in-your-face nature of glam metal as such and packages it for an audience that's craving some sort of you know sophistication or complexity or maturity or just well an evolution to that sound which i think skidrow managed to do so well together peter this is interesting because you're a first time listener to this album what did you make of it I'm wondering why Ravi and you didn't convince me to listen to this album earlier. <laughs> but no, I'm telling you, like, I mean, a lot of what you're saying kind of resonates with me because this is the kind of stuff that maybe I would appreciate now. And like going back, if I kind of looked at Skidrow and only knew those few songs, I'd be like, huh, it's going to kind of be the same kind of poppy and all of that. But this has like a complete different kind of energy and aggression to it. Like you can tell, and I'm wondering why, like in India, no one kind of talks about it, right? Like, I don't know about the rest of the world, but like among our friend circle of people that like listen to it, I don't know, like if you have to get them to name like five albums from the 90s and all, I don't know if this will be uh, one of them. Mm. And uh, probably the reason why is kind of what Ravi set out, right? Because cable television at that time and Channel V and MTV had such an important role in just influencing what we listened to at that time, right? But I really enjoyed the album. I mean, uh, for me, it was something, especially like when you're listening to a lot of just like extreme metal and death metal and black metal and all of that, this is kind of like comes in the middle and I just left it on. Like I've, I've heard it like five, six times since yesterday and... Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Now I'm going to hunt down a CD for it, possibly. Mm. Who, who still sells CDs of this? <laughs> Quick, for your favorite songs? I did a thing where I only listened to the clean version of the album. But uh, I like oh, okay. Be- Beggar's Day. I mean, like to me, that was a good one. Ravi already mentioned uh, Wasted Time. You don't expect it wasted time like at the end, right? Like, yeah. you, you, you want that slightly higher up. But... Uh, for me, the title track, man, like that second, like it, it comes in perfectly there, second. And here's a tidbit while I was reading up on the album. That's the demo that they had. It's not even like, you know, a re-recorded version. They just put left the demo. And I was like, that's such a good decision. Because imagine if we listened to like the pristine, better recorded version of it. And the band themselves didn't like it. But 
Yeah, what what uh, about you? For me, it's the ballads that really are the stars on this album: "Quicksand," "Jesus," and "Wasted Times," especially. Um, but also, I absolutely dig the balls to the wall speed of "Monkey Business," "Slave to the Grind," and even "Riot Act" as well. I prefer "Get the Fuck Out" to "Beggar's Day." I think because "Get the Fuck Out" has this more uh, punkish kind of an energy too, and obviously. It, gets you to repeatedly shout out get the fuck out which is always a joy <laughs> <laughs> yeah but what about you ravi stand out track oh i pretty much like the album start to finish actually uh, funnily enough the uh, anime there's three versions of the albums out there uh, out there that i know of and i think i got the third version which was a korean print of the lp oh. which i think uh, korea was hugely into censoring swear words so they dropped get the fuck out i don't think beggar's day is on it and they also dropped riot act because it's also got a lot of cuss words in it uh, i'd say the absolute standout cuts uh, you know and i'm like really uh, this is a really hard kind of choice uh, monkey business slave to the grind uh, living on a chain gang certainly riot act uh, get the fuck out and uh, on the ballad side uh, I actually like Quicksand Jesus and uh, you know Wasted Time a great deal on a less fantastic album in a darkened room would have been a highlight but you know it's I think a little snowed under just by the quality of the other songs that are on the on that album hmm. so yeah so if you notice a lot of the lyrics on the uh, uh, first uh, album were slightly more sleazy you know it was the standard uh, uh slightly cockrocky kind of stuff like you know i think the rattlesnake shake and sweet little sister you know it was the kind of stuff that you'd expect from uh, a glam metal sort of band whereas even the lyrics had kind of gone into these themes of social decay and you know uh being part of the rat race and wanting out of it which is what slave to the grind is about and you know so and i think monkey business about addiction so there was i think uh skidro probably matured 5 years in the 2 years between uh the debut and uh, slave to the grind yep is it is it is it back who's written all the lyrics here uh, i'm not 100% sure even, yeah even i'm even i'm not 100% sure because it's it's incredibly mature for his age at that time too because what yeah, i mean was... whoever wrote the lyrics did a bang up job but exactly. uh, yeah i'm just trying to see if i can find that out um i think the the, uh, the other interesting thing is just the personality he brings to the delivery of the lyrics in the sense that you know uh, uh i think this is best seen if you hear the uh, non setback version of 18 and life it's a fairly okay song Mm-hmm. but you know the kind of uh, uh emotion he brings to the delivery you know that's completely off the charts so maybe uh i don't know if he wrote these lyrics but he definitely kind of brought them to life sebastian back if you're listening to this episode please clarify that i'm pretty sure he will yeah we we'll tag him on twitter already <laughs> oh instagram <laughs> let's talk legacy right now this album goes down in history as the first heavy metal album to hit number 1 on the billboard 
And yes, you may say that's because of the Nielsen sound scan era just coming in, etc., etc. But that's not an ordinary feat. Of course, though, if someone asks you to name the biggest albums released in 1991, Slave to the Grind doesn't really get mentioned at all. That honor goes to Metallica's Metallica or Use Your Illusion or even, hell, Atheist's Unquestionable Presence or Death's Human. Uh, if you cast a wider net, there's, Nirv- there's Nirvana's Nevermind, Pearl Jam's 10, U2's Aktung Baby, Michael Jackson's Dangerous, Massive Attack's Blue Lines, and uh, even RHCP's Blood Sugar Sex Magic. For So here's the question then, was Slave to the Grind just a little too late to the party? Did it just not have the right audience? Or uh, the bigger subjective question is, was it just not good enough? I'd say it was probably slightly late to the party. I mean, if it uh, had kind of hit in uh, 1990, it's legacy at least i think would have been a lot stronger it's just that it was a very very good album in a year in which there were a lot of very very good albums some of which went on to kind of change the musical landscape radically for better or worse uh you know uh i speak here about Nevermind and uh 10 of course uh so i think it just was bad timing it slipped between the cracks but then if you think about it almost every band that kind of had its heyday in the late 80s had a similar problem uh, if you think about extreme they put out what in my opinion is an absolute masterpiece with three sides to every story i uh, i mean this is a bit of a controversial experience uh, I, I mean controversial kind of uh, attitude to have but uh, you know, there, there were a lot of people who heard Three Sides to Every Story and said, oh, you know what, this is extreme trying to do Queen, but mm-hmm. I like Three Sides to Every Story more than I like any Queen, any individual Queen album. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, then you had, I think, Queen's Reich, slightly different genre, of course, who finally, in my opinion, lived up to their progressive metal tag I, with Promised yep. Land. All these really good albums in my opinion, kind of sank like stones because they just were released in a very, very unpromising musical environment. And, you know, uh, I think the legacy of these bands clouded people's perception of the music to the point where perhaps people who would otherwise have liked these albums never turned on to them because, you know, they were uncool or part of something that people had very, very poor opinion of. I think... The same thing happened with Skid Row. I think there was a fairly large gap between uh, uh, Slave to the Grind and uh, Subhuman subhuman Race. Mm -hmm. And I think by then, uh, the uh, rifts in the band were fairly apparent. And if you listen to Subhuman Race, it again, I mean, I wouldn't say it's Skid Row trying to go grunge because it isn't, but it's... Skid Row in a slight existential crisis as to what their sound ought to be. They're kind of taking a bit of the slow plodding stuff that Pantera had got, you know, and uh, I think especially far beyond Riven. And it's just a bit confused. And I think, you know, it's definitely the uh, sound of a band that's, that's not entirely sure what its place is in the world anymore. Hmm. 
Now, this is the good thing about history, right? It allows you to bring in context because in 991, of course, I wasn't listening to a lot of heavy metal in those days, but uh, in 991, that is. But obviously, now with history on hand, I can say that this is definitely the time when the popularity of glam or heavy metal itself is beginning to lose mainstream appeal, sort of, because there's a rise of just alternative and different sounds which uh, which are coming in and are coming in rapidly fun fact nirvana was also named skid row at one point in time which is weird oh, but essentially wow. <laughs> yeah essentially the days of excess seems to be finished you have everybody going into like you know either uh, trying to basically evolve their musical tastes and moving just completely different from what has already been done before which as Ravi pointed out and which I'm pointing out too, maybe Skid Row just were at the wrong place at the wrong time, even though they got some amount of commercial success for it. Um, but here's the funny thing. 30 years later, we are still talking about the album and so are the musicians involved with it. Of course, Sebastian Bach is no longer with Skid Row, and, but that hasn't stopped him from announcing a Slave to the Grind 30th anniversary tour where he's promising to play the album in entirety. Skid Row, on the other hand, which is still a band and still performing, led by Rachel Bolin, Snake Sabo, and now featuring ZP Thart on vocals, also plan to play the album in entirety. Which of the two acts would you spend your hard-earned money on? If I was given a choice, definitely Sebastian Bach. To me too. It's clearly Sebastian Bach. I mean, what about much you? as I like uh, ZP, who did an amazing job with uh, Dragon Force, uh, I kind of think the animating spirit behind those songs is Sebastian Bach. And, you know, there are some vocalists who can be replaced and some who can't. And, you know, I think Seb Bach is definitely in the uh, latter category. Exactly. You talked about uh, the Skid Row formula and what it's missing. It's definitely Bach. Definitely. This is purely a case of your your frontman being being the drawing factor for a band. You know, when uh, uh, Motley Crue jettisoned uh, Vince Neil and uh, got John Karabi in, I actually wish they discontinued with him because... That album was absolutely fantastic. Again, one of those albums that didn't do really as well as I thought it should have, mainly because, you know, the legacy had turned to poison by the time it was released. Uh, even Poison's legacy turned to poison. Haha, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and allow me to just fanboy a little bit more about Back, but even uh, on Chinese Democracy as well as on Angel Down, when you have Axel Rose coming on to sing along with Bach or on the same song, for oh, me, yeah. Bach is the better singer. Uh, that, that, that was the, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, but that was the, uh, again, the amazing thing about Angel Down, right? It was the first time you'd heard Axel Rose singing since the uh, spaghetti uh, incident, incident, not counting the, uh, you know, uh, Sympathy for the Devil cover, which was neither mm -hmm. here nor there. Uh, and yeah, um, funnily enough, uh, Back has always been a huge Axl Rose fan. Uh, exactly. I think yeah. Talk about getting uh, you know these secondhand heavy metal magazines that somehow washed up on Indian shores, and one of them was the Circus Magazine issue in which the uh, you know readers' polls were announced, and Sebastian Bach was 
judged the best vocalist and the headline for that story was i beat axel give me a break <laughs> yeah look look how that turned out huh? <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean coming back to the question definitely back i mean like i've seen a couple of live videos and stuff of his uh, i i think i'd pay and this is going to sound really but like i've already seen motley crew so i'm never going to like pay money to see them again but compared to like bands from that era and all i think yeah and i've already seen jnr a couple of times no once cuz so i'd i'd spend my money watching bark hmm okay here's my final thought about about skid row actually or about this particular album and its uh predecessor skid row itself i think it's one of the best one two punches uh which comes from a band and here's the thing right for people who are into metal music uh i think skid row is similar or can be positioned as the alison chains of this particular sound because alison chains is not grunge they are more heavy metal than grunge but not heavy metal enough Oh the the other really interesting thing is uh, Skid Row is now kind of like you know uh, possibly a cult band which seems ridiculous for a band that you know uh, topped the Billboard charts but Exactly. Think, uh, uh like the first time I met Bipror from Albatross uh he came up to me and he was like hey I sing in a band and I'm like oh cool what do you sing and he was like yeah you know I can sing stuff like Skid Row and I looked at him and I thought okay this guy is either the best vocalist on the scene or the biggest bullshitter on the scene it turned out to be the best vocalist on the scene but you know uh so basically skid row sebastian buck the singing on slave to the grind kind of became a benchmark for a certain sort of heavy metal vocal performance you know the stuff that was not really shriek dependent like say a rob halford uh that was not you know theatrical like dickinson but which somehow combined all of these elements and fused them into something completely unique something completely aggressive and at the same time something that was capable of conveying a great sense of a uh, great depth of emotion and pathos like on something like wasted time that's where we leave you with today if you've heard the album before go ahead and le- uh, and listen to it once again and if you've never heard of the album well I think this episode is, should uh, convince you to because yes you are missing out on quite a lot. We are calling it a wrap on this episode of Horns Up. We'll be spending August celebrating some more albums that either mark 30 years old or 40 years old or even 50 years old of sorts. As always talk to us we are at hornsuppod.com and on Twitter at hornsuppod. I'm at Asmawani. I'm at Trent Pressure. Ravi, I'm you still not want to give out your social media <laughs> IDs, or is that both finally? You need to like Google Ravi. <laughs> Take that extra step. Come on. What's it gonna be? Uh, nothing. I'm at home. That's it. This was horns up. Horns up, guys. Horns up.